Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on March 2, 2014, 10.30 a.m. Today's message is Students of the Master for the Cost of Enrollment by Pastor Isaac Whitening based on scripture reading Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. Father God, we submit ourselves humbly to you in this time. You are God, no man. God, please help us to submit ourselves to your word. Help each of us, myself very much included, to hear what you are saying today. God, change us more to be into the image of Christ. Change us deep inside to be like him. This is life. Amen. Well, good morning. I have had um, an interesting morning. Maybe I'll tell you about it another time. God has done a number of things this morning to challenge me, um, but I'm excited because I know that the challenges that God sends us all are for our good. They are to help us grow in Christ if we will only hold on to our faith and trust in him. Today we're in part, part, today we're in part four. Wow. Today we are in part four of a sermon series entitled Students of the Master. And this section is called uh, The Cost of Enrollment. But before we go into that, I'd like to do uh, one more mini-sermon for you today. And the mini-sermon today is entitled How to Be a Miserable Christian. This might sound like a strange thing to teach on how to be a miserable Christian, but just in case you wanted to know, I am going to give you a how-to guide today, step by step. And really, there's only one step you need to follow carefully if you would like to be a miserable Christian. And that step is, you need to go halfway. Three quarters, all the way, certainly, that's not going to do it. You're going to be mostly a fantastically happy and joyful Christian. Three quarters of the way, that's probably not the best either. A quarter, you're not going to be miserable enough. Halfway is perfect if you want to be extremely miserable in your life in Christ. You see, Jesus and his earliest followers, they were full of joy and peace and rest and hope in the Holy Spirit, full of love, even when they had the greatest sufferings. And that's because when a suffering came, they had committed themselves so fully to Christ. Their entire lives, their entire time and energy were dedicated to capturing this vision of becoming like Jesus, of entering into eternal life. And so with that vision firmly before them, when they entered into suffering, they knew that it would turn out for their good. They knew that God was in control, and so the suffering was only something he was using to make them better. And so they were joyful. And if you want to be a miserable Christian, that's exactly what you don't want to do. So uh, consider three examples, illustrations from the Gospels. Uh, First, the Gospels, uh, the Bible, call becoming a Christian. They call it a movement from darkness into light. Now, if you're completely in the dark and you had always lived in the dark, it's painful to come into the light, isn't it? The light is too bright for you at first. 
But if you enter into the light fully, you will very soon get used to it, and then you will enjoy the light. If you want to be a miserable Christian, what you need to do is enter halfway, and then as soon as the pain starts, run back into the darkness, and then do it over and over again, so that you're always in pain. Or again, becoming a Christian is described as the creation of a new person in you. Jesus doesn't just want to make you a little bit better. He wants to crucify the person that you were and make you into an entirely new person. And the New Testament tells us that those two people, the old person and the new person, are at war with each other. So if you go halfway, you will be at war with yourself. Part of you will have entered into the new life and part will still be living in the old life. And you will be gloriously miserable. Or finally, the New Testament describes becoming a Christian as being born again. A baby is perfectly safe, for a while anyway, as long as it's in the womb. And it's perfectly safe once it's been born fully. But a baby is not safe while it's being born. You can't be born halfway. And so the Christian life is just like this. If you want to be a miserable Christian, just go into it halfway. End of mini-sermon. Now, I'd like to do a little bit by way of review as we start into this part four, Students of the Master. This sermon series has been about what it means to be a student of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, his disciple, And it's been about why you would want to do that, and then how to do it. Now, there's a rumor going around the church that sometimes some people don't always remember the sermons. I don't know if you've heard that rumor. but So I'd like to review for you just some of the things we've said in this sermon series, which started back in January. Uh, The first sermon was entitled, Living in a Different World. Students of the Master One living in a different world. And this sermon was simply trying to remind us that Jesus is the best. He's the best, the smartest, the wisest, the bravest, the best person who has ever lived. He lived constantly in the kingdom of God, and that because of that, he was completely safe. Not just that he thought he was safe, but he was actually safe all the time. And this enabled him to love other people in a way no one else ever has, at least without his help. If you see Jesus as he is, you will want to be like him. And so this is the thing that we need the most. We need a constant, fresh revelation in our lives of who Jesus is. We need to meet with him and to know him. And then we will have a strong desire to become like him. The second sermon in the series, Come to Me and Learn, was about what it's like to be a student of Jesus. To be his disciple is a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of rest, even in the deepest suffering. Because to be a disciple requires this full commitment, as I talked about at the beginning, this full commitment to Jesus. And once you go there, even suffering will become joy to you as you trust in your Father who is in the heavens. Last week, we did the third section in this series, 
And that was entitled, How to Register. So if you want to become a student of Jesus, what do you do? How do you enter into that relationship with him? And I said last week that what you do is you enroll as a student of Jesus by deciding to go find him and do whatever he says. It's really that simple. Jesus is here. He is here in this world, actually and really. In fact, he is here more so than he was when he walked on the earth in a physical body. Because he has died and risen again to new life and ascended to heaven, he is now here by his Holy Spirit more fully than he was then and available to all of us wherever we are at any time. Because of that, it is very simple, not always easy, but very simple to become and to remain a disciple, a student of Jesus. All you have to do is this one thing with your whole life. Constantly go find him, actually him, not just things about him, and then do whatever it is he says. We talked a number of times about what kinds of things are on Jesus' to-do list, what kinds of things he is teaching us to do. It's not primarily church work. It's the work of becoming like him in our inner selves. At the end of this sermon last week, I said that I would address a question. And that question is, what if I don't want to? What if I know that I should be a student of Jesus? I know it's the right thing to do. I know that, yeah, maybe it would give me a life of joy and peace if I did it fully. But I don't want to. It seems too hard. Or I'm too busy. Do I have to? Maybe I just like my life the way it is. What if I don't want to and have a bad attitude about it? This happens to all of us from time to time, and so we'll address this today. The cost of enrollment. What does it cost you to become and to remain a student of Jesus? And here's the main point for the sermon today. To be a student of Jesus, to be able to do it, you must see what an opportunity studying under Jesus is. You must see very clearly before your mind, before your eyes, what an opportunity it is to be his student all the time. Or else you won't be able to be his student. Not that he won't let you, mind you. You will simply not be able to do it. Let me start off with an illustration from education. Let's say you wanted to go to university. You're a young person finishing up high school, and you have these great dreams of going off to Harvard or UBC or the University of Toronto, something like that. Now, it's very expensive to go to these schools, and it takes a lot of work to go to these schools. So the offer that's being presented to you is, you can pay one, two, three hundred thousand dollars and do a whole bunch of really hard work for four years. You pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars 
and do a whole bunch of really hard work for four years. Will you accept this offer? Now, if you don't see very clearly what an opportunity it is to go to one of these schools, you would never take that offer, right? Why would I pay someone so that I can work for them? I would never take this opportunity, but if you see clearly and hold before your mind what will result in your life as a result of going to those schools and doing all that work and paying all that money, that number one, you will make much more money later, that your life will be much better than it would have been. With that vision in front of your mind, all of a sudden, it's an opportunity. In fact, one of the great opportunities of your life to go to one of these schools. This is the teaching of Jesus about discipleship to him, about being his student. And here we'll enter into the text for today, treasure, pearls, and joy. I preached a sermon a number of years ago, I think it might have been as long as four years ago, on the treasure hidden in the field. And I actually got a microphone stand and walked down through the aisle and found a $20 bill hidden in front of Teresa Batum. Does anyone, raise your hand if you remember that sermon. I'm just curious. All right. Interesting. Jesus gives a parable here to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. And first he says, the kingdom of heaven is like what happens when someone who has been searching for treasure finds a great treasure hidden in a field. He digs it up, he sees it, he is ecstatically excited. He, in great joy, Jesus says, he buries the treasure again because it's not his field. And secretly, he goes away and he sells everything that he owns so that he can go and buy that field and receive the treasure. He sells everything he owns in great joy. Or again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, a shop owner, a jewelry, a jeweler, who has gone around looking for pearls so that he can sell them again at a higher price than he buys them for. And he finds a great deal. It's an expensive pearl, but he knows that he can sell it for an immense amount of money. And so in great joy, again, he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy that pearl and receive something far better, receive something far more than the cost. In both of these illustrations, we have someone paying a great price. The price is everything that they have. And in both illustrations, the person has in front of their mind, vividly, the vision that it is a bargain. It is the best deal they could ever receive. It is not a burden to these people to sell everything that they own. Of course it's not a burden. They're not worrying about it for a moment because of what they will receive on the other side. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And these parables explain to us a number of other sometimes difficult statements that Jesus makes. So in Luke 14, Jesus gives a number of very difficult statements often known as the cost of discipleship section, the cost of being a student of Jesus. He says things in that section like, if you don't love me far more than you love your mother and father, if you don't love me so much that your love for your mother and father looks like hatred compared to your love for me, you just can't be my disciple. He says in that section, if you don't love me more than your own life, you can't be my disciple. He says in that section, if you don't give away everything that you own, you can't be my disciple. What's going on here? Really? I have to give away everything I own to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, no. Jesus is not, in fact, saying here that if you're not these things, God will be mad at you and he won't let you be his disciple. What he is saying is that if you are not in the state of mind that you would do this willingly and joyously knowing that it's the best deal you could ever receive, then you simply won't be able to be his disciple. You won't be able to do what's required to allow God to change you in your inner being to be like Jesus. It's a painful process, and you won't be able to do it. Here we move into the area of motivation in our Christian life. What is driving us? Jesus is not so much interested in what we do as who we are and who we become. He is not as interested in what we do as who we are and who we become. And therefore, it is of the very highest importance why we do the things that we do. God doesn't necessarily want you to do something very different than you had been doing before you were a Christian, unless some of those things were clearly evil and bad. To become a student of Jesus today doesn't mean, as it most of the time did in the time when Jesus was physically here, that you have to leave your job or leave your family. That might be the case sometimes today, but the normal pattern is that you do not. In fact, you don't have to change the main activities of your life to become a student of Jesus. You have to change the reason that you do them. It is an inner work. Jesus is with us wherever we are, and we need to find him and become his students in the things that we're already doing, in your job, in your relationships with your family, in the time when you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed at night, when you're brushing your teeth. These are the times when you are a disciple of Jesus all of the time. Why do we do the things that I do? I want to bring back a few quotes that we heard two weeks ago from Pastor Mike Bros. And these have to do with the message today, and they're just too good not to repeat over and over again, I think. Mike said when he was here, don't invite people to church unless it gives you joy to do it. Don't bring them here to see your lack of of enthusiasm. This is all about what is behind our actions. Jesus doesn't just want you to go tell people about him. 
He wants you to be in love with him so that you would then naturally and easily desire and go and tell people about him. Mike also said this, if we don't love Jesus, let our little church die. If we don't love Jesus, let our little church die. The most important thing is our vision of Jesus himself. If we are not in love with Jesus and doing our actions out of that, for that reason, we may as well not be doing them at all. We should let anything go or at least work very hard to change the things that we're doing if we are not doing them out of love for Christ. I'd like to tell you a story about running. I have always been a runner. When I was four years old, we lived on a farm, and my dad, I used to, my dad would be out in the farm on, in, the, in our truck with me, and I used to ask him if I could run back to the house and race him there. I ran all through uh, the time I was growing up in high school. I even ran in college. I even ran Division I for a while. I ran with a bunch of Kenyans. That was a humbling experience. But as I ran, uh, especially in high school and then in college, running became a burden to me. It became something that I felt like I had to do, and I started to hate it. And really what had happened is that I had changed my motivation for running. When I was five years old, I ran because I loved to run. And when I was 21 years old, I ran because I was prideful and I was afraid. I ran because this had become part of my identity, and if I didn't do it, who would I be? If I wasn't the best, I was, I was afraid of what I would think of myself or what other people would think of me. I ran out of pride and fear, and it killed my running. I hated it. And then about a year and a half ago, I decided to try a whole new tactic. I found that I didn't want to run, so I started just focusing on why I would want to run. I read a book about, uh, basically an inspirational book about running called Born to Run, and I listened to this book while I ran, and I didn't try to run for any amount of time. I didn't try to accomplish any goal. I just ran for whatever measure gave me joy and whatever amount of running I loved. And as I did that over time, building up and focusing on why I would want to run, I started to love running again. And it's come back to me to the point now, I can't wait. I'm looking for opportunities to jet out of my house and ditch Amber with the kids and go run around the park. Sorry. So I want to say to you today, one of the ways that we can find our love for Jesus is to stop doing things because you have to. Stop doing things because you have to. I'm not necessarily saying you should stop everything in your life, if that's the way you feel. But you should definitely stop doing things because you have to do them. Some things maybe you should drop. Other things you should definitely focus on the reason that you want to do it until that reason is completely love for God, love for Jesus. When that is your motivation, your life will sing. It will be in tune with the Holy Spirit. You will be full of joy and peace and rest.
In fact, when we do things constantly because we feel like we have to, when we work out of pride and fear all the time, this is when we become busy. Busy and stressed out. And busyness and stress are a spiritual disease. They are a spiritual sickness. Busyness doesn't really have to do with how many things you are doing. I know it seems like it does. But just look at Jesus. Jesus sometimes worked so hard. He did take breaks and rests, of course. But he sometimes worked so hard that it is amazing it didn't literally kill him. 24 hours a day, it seems like he was awake between prayer and all the ministries that he was doing. He's fasting for days, maybe even weeks at a time. And yet he is full of joy. And can you even imagine Jesus being busy or stressed out? When someone came to Jesus with some new request, did he get mad and say, I can't possibly handle this? Of course not. He did it out of love and joy for his Father in heaven and his life sang with the Holy Spirit. Busyness is a spiritual sickness. So to bring us back to where we are today, the cost of enrollment, the cost of becoming a student of Jesus, what you need to do is see very clearly, to see very clearly what an opportunity it is. What are the relative costs? Yes, being a Christian costs my whole life. Yes, That sounds like a very high cost until you consider what you receive on the other end. And then it seems like nothing. It cost me my whole life? Yeah, my broken, defeated, depressed, worried, busy, stressed out, anxious life. And what do I receive? Eternal, unlimited life of joy and peace and rest. What is the relative cost of those two alternatives. Which one would you choose? If you are in the state where you don't want to become a student of Jesus, it's not your greatest desire, then stop doing things because you have to and focus everything you have on regaining the vision of Jesus, regaining the vision of who he is and his kingdom and what your life will be like if you fully Become his student. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us today. Please help us to see what it is to become your student, why we would want to do it. God, please give us the vision of Jesus and who he is. Lord, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, by the way, uh, notes for the sermons. Whenever I'm preaching, there will be notes for the sermons at the Welcome Center. I've forgotten to say this a number of days. The mini-sermon that I spoke at the beginning is also available at the Welcome Center or on our church website and on my blog. Thank you.